Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster, and on today's show... An economic miracle is taking place in the United States, and the only thing that can stop it are foolish wars, politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. After the acrimony and delays, Donald Trump finally delivers his State of the Union address. Was it a roadmap for his government or a rallying call to the faithful in the run-up to the 2020 election? The president says a summit with North Korea will go ahead later this month. Can he cut a meaningful deal with the reclusive nuclear state or is it all just smoke and mirrors? My guests Carlo Bonura and Jeffrey Howard will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including old enough to play politics but too young to be taken seriously. Why is a 37-year-old Japanese MP demanding more R-E-S-P-E-C-T? And as the anchor of a leading British radio show says he's retiring this year, we'll be asking whether the era of personality-led journalism is coming to an end. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guest today are Carlo Bonura, who's the Senior Teaching Fellow in Southeast Asian Politics at SOAS, and Geoffrey Howard. Geoffrey is the Lecturer in Political Theory at University College London. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Well, it finally happened. Donald Trump delivered his State of the Union address to Congress and a prime time television audience. The US president was supposed to have made the 82-minute speech in January, but his standoff with the Democrats, who've refused to give him more than $5 billion to build a border war with Mexico, put pay to that. Unsurprisingly, Mr Trump used the occasion to reiterate his promise to build that wall. At the same time, he called on politicians in both houses to put aside their divisions and to work together in a spirit of unity. This is a question I'm going to throw open to, to both of you. So who, who answers it? You can decide it amongst yourselves. But what did you think about this speech? Was it run of the mill or did, did either of you go into it with, with no expectations, really? You know, we had the first uh, more than 100 years or so of the Republic with the State of the Union being written by hand and then delivered to Congress and then the members of Congress would read it and then everyone would go home. And last night made me think we might want to return to that arrangement. I mean, this this bizarre ritual, I mean, has become pretty devoid of substance. So the president didn't really articulate very many concrete policy proposals last night. Um, He made a bunch of um, remarks uh, along the lines of we need greater unity that, that couldn't have come off as less disingenuous. I mean, clearly the president, nothing he's done has suggested that he's remotely interested in actually acting on these sentiments. Um, and so people who, who watched Netflix last night instead of the State of the Union didn't really miss much. Oh, dear, a waste of time. <laughs> I think that, uh, yeah, thoroughly run-of-the-mill, uh, perhaps that is a sim- uh, sign that uh, Trump is attempting to act presidential insofar as he didn't actually say anything that was uh, remarkable. Um, you know, what was missing from this were direct attacks against the Democrats on the wall. It's, it appears that in the midst of all these uh, true, like the stream of truisms that came out of his uh, mouth, Uh, And in some cases, exaggerations of uh, fact uh, that somebody must have told him this isn't the place to take on the Democrats, especially when it's not clear exactly how negotiations are going. And so I think that he my my, what I'm fascinated by with Donald Trump in terms of public speaking is that 
uh, many people on the right believe that he is the second great communicator. You know that he is a he is a reincarnation of Reagan. Reagan. Yeah, he's a re- reincarnation of Reagan, and I think that. Um, Previously, in terms of that televised speech, uh, I was impressed with that speech insofar as that he was able to kind of weave this narrative about the wall in ways that he simply hadn't before. But this this demonstrate this this went back to to old school uh, Trump in front of a television type performance mm. where he's really incapable of delivering the the kind of pithy lines that are put in front of him and uh, that in terms of his ability to communicate big topics that he's no uh, better or worse than any other. Uh, kind of run the mill I think I think the interesting thing though is that people have been dissecting it since he delivered it and they said look you know there there were a couple of weasel expressions shall we say that um were deliberately designed to appeal to that base so they were not so subtle coded references for example I, I can't quote the exact phrase but perhaps about him being a president for the forgotten the blue collar workers so even though he couldn't actually give it the theatrics he was certainly appealing to them in those little expressions and also with that that reference to the wall and partisan politics, the idea that he's the victim of a witch hunt, etc. And he was constantly linking, linking immigration to criminality, immigration to criminality. He'd say that he's only linking illegal immigration to criminality, but he was nevertheless painting a picture of Hispanic immigrants as dangerous people and reiterating that again and again and doing so in a quite clever way that made the Democrats, any Democrat who opposed what he was saying, seem pretty unreasonable. So he kept talking about child trafficking and sex trafficking. Um, He kept talking about people being murdered by undocumented migrants. And if you were someone watching at home who didn't know very much and watched this and said, oh, gosh, it looks like we have a real problem on our hands here um, with with illegal immigrants. And then uh, Trump gestures to the audience and he's brought in the family members of people who were whose family members were murdered within the past few weeks by an undocumented migrant, and he has everyone stand up and applaud them. And you can see Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, sitting there like, oh, geez. Mm. And sure enough, she has to clap along and stand up because you can't clap for the family. I I was going to talk about the point about body language. Before we get on to that, though, I mean, that's the point, though, with these little references and and the theatrics, having having the victims of Mm. um, other people's violence there, because we saw him do that when he was actually campaigning to become the president. But if you have been living in a vacuum for the past two years, then seeing that at this this high profile speech, it's probably going to get a conversation going, and it might well win people over to the camp to the to the Trump camp. Absolutely, and I think this is the reason why presidents uh, actually don't deliver the State of the Union by hand written out anymore in the in this kind of. Uh, I guess age of television was a pretty anachronistic statement at the you know uh, phrase, but uh, I think that um, the there were a lot of uh, hints uh, and uh, about um, sorry there were a lot of messages for constituencies out there, not mm-hmm. simply his base. And what I find again awkward about the speech is that somebody went down uh, a list and said we have to talk about women and the economy, we have to talk about Hispanics, we have to talk about African Americans. Uh, some of the fact checking on these um, were very interesting, like how uh, you know the claim that this uh, the highest Afri- African American employment rate in 50 years, but numbers haven't actually been kept for 50 years. You know, so how would you know that? <laughs> uh, but um, what I found amazing was the moment, uh, you know, the the whole uh, women in white applause moment where he. 
um, said we've increased the employment levels for mm. women, and the the women in the Democratic uh, side of the aisle uh, rose to applaud that. Mm. And to, they, were, they were a little bit awkward about it at they first. They were totally awkward, and they were kind of trying to. It was a performance. They were overplaying the applause, not knowing that the next line was referring to them. And Trump had this awkward moment. But Pelosi, I thought, you know, when he when Trump would uh, talk about compromise or at that particular moment, she was very actively performing as well, you know, reaching out her applause to Trump on things that, that she thought were good. Or I just thought it was a there was there were a lot of performative moments mm. in addition to the, the obvious performance of rehearsing this sure. uh, narrative about uh, migration. And that leads me on to the point about body language, because the, the excerpts of the speech that I watched, I wasn't so much listening to, to Donald Trump, speaking for myself, but it was really fascinating looking at the expressions of Nancy Pelosi and Mike Pence because she sat next to the vice president and he he always has this very benign look, a deliberate <laughs> attempt to look inscrutable. So it, it would have been difficult trying to, to, to make sense of, of that look, what it was trying to convey, if it was trying to convey anything at all. I mean, Mike Pence, it would play a pretty good robot, right? You know, I mean, uh, I mean, I think the theater of this just shows, I mean, just how absurd this is. I mean, these this these are not serious. I mean, they do, they are not coming to this event as serious people coming to discuss the business of the nation, coming to discuss life or death issues of public policy. This could be a real opportunity for, for people to come together and say, right, here's what we've done this year. Here's what we need to do. And I think... Um, Barack Obama did try to do that, at least in some parts of his State of the Union. George W. Bush did try to do that. And I think we've gotten to a point where really this is not an occasion of substance. It's a, it's a ritual. It's a way for people to celebrate each other on the back. I mean, the bit where the Republican congressman started shouting, USA, USA, like it was some rally in Montana. I mean, it was just absurd. Mm. But is that a compensation for the fact that we're not at a rally in Montana <laughs> and that perhaps the behavior has to be a little bit more restrained? But if I'm not mistaken, that moment was after the line about electing women to Congress. And I thought, you know, so people are shouting, chanting USA because this is such a, a great moment. But I thought, you know what, the other parts of the world have got this down so much better. This is not something that, Amer- I mean, America needs to be proud about, uh, needs to be worried about the fact that there's not more representation uh, rather than uh, the fact that they somehow got a single election, which voted a lot of people who should have been there already to Congress, you know. But then he, he talked about achieving political unity. And I, okay, I hear what you guys are saying, that you don't actually believe that, believe that he, he meant what he said. He, he said it for the sake of it. But this this really gets to the heart of it. How can he achieve political unity? Because at the end of the day, when you strip away all the gloss and the fanfare, etc., of that State of the Union address, there is hostility. There was a sense that knives have been sharpened, but for the sake of decorum, they've been kept under the table. It's only a matter of time before they're actually brought to the surface. Absolutely. I mean, the president's party had a majority in both houses of Congress for two years, and they didn't get anything done. They could have put an infrastructure bill together that they could have gotten support for in the Senate um, and certainly the House. They could have had some kind of immigration bill that put up some fencing but fixed the the DACA problem. This is the issue of the Dreamers, the the children who came uh, to the United States as as, as, as kids illegally. Um, they could have put together a bill, and there were opportunities to do that. But Trump got nervous, and Coulter and Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh said, "No, no, no, that's really bad. That you'd be turning on mm. your so these base." These are the if radio and that. TV commentators. So, exactly. These are the these are the the people that um, certainly Trump is watching regularly and listening to regularly, and that Trump thinks his base is very attentive to. And I think Trump, you know has this inkling that, oh, maybe I should reach out and have a compromise. And then he worries, no, what if my base turns on me? And that fear um, prevents him from actually doing anything. 
Well, let's stay with the State of the Union because during this speech, Donald Trump also confirmed he'll meet the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un at a summit in Vietnam later this month. Now, the last time both men spoke face-to-face was in Singapore, and that was in 2018, when they signed a comprehensive document promising a new relationship between their countries and a commitment to work towards, and I quote, the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So what can the world expect this month? Carlo, from the look of your on your face, I would read that you think not very much. <laughs> well, uh, there's a couple of different points to be made here about what to expect. The first is I, I don't think there'll be uh, that this particular summit will achieve very much. However, the fact that it's a summit at all, I think is, uh, you know, Trump, this is Trump's line and there is some truth to this. It is a... Uh, you know, a position that we've never been in before, the sequence of uh, presidential summits. Having said that, I think that many analysts who watch North Korea very closely and certainly people, hawks within the U.S. administration are probably thinking that this is the last thing we want to do to think that with uh, for giving up for the most part, nothing. Um, and recently there were reports that uh, North Korea is actively trying to, to you know, dissimulate in terms of its uh, nuclear capabilities for giving up uh, basically nothing that the uh, the president is going to reward him with, with yet another uh, summit. There, there have been, there was some uh, reporting about a speech, um, a pol- policy analysis within the administration uh, made regarding the status of uh, peace deal on the table in uh, for North Korea. And I think if... Um, if the, the Trump administration could actually be more clear about it, what it wants, what its objectives are, and if North Korean peace is part of that, then that might be a way to really uh, begin to transform these talks into something substantive, then that's fine. Uh, but I think he's in a he's in a hard place here because uh, on the one hand, the outcome, there can't be anything major to come out of the summit. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, he's going to claim this a victory regardless. So. Mm. But, but I mean, let, let's, let's broaden this out a little bit, Jeffrey. Should we actually read something into the timing about this summit? Because look, Mr. Trump has got a lot of problems at home, okay, and there are problems coming in ever closer. I'm thinking particularly about the, the the Mueller report, or Mueller report. Now, is there a sense that perhaps he's hoping if he can pull a rabbit out of the hat on this, that maybe it's going to shift attention away from what's happening at home so that he can claim a foreign policy triumph? I think the president is clearly the master of deflection, right? Look at the shiny object over here. I mean, I think when he had the first summit in Singapore, he claimed it was a very clear win. Uh, and then the intelligence communities made it pretty clear that uh, North Korea hadn't really done anything. Yeah, they hadn't had further tests, but it's that they were continuing to to build and maintain their nuclear facilities. Um, I mean, the language used in the Singapore agreement was significant and verifiable progress on denuclearization, but there were no specific actions that were specified. Now, the uh, Stephen Reagan, the Trump special representative in North Korea, gave a speech at Stanford last week in which he repeated that phrase, significant and verifiable progress on denuclearization, and then said, but we also want actions that are bold and real. Well, that's still pretty vague. And so I think the hope here, I think, is that we can actually get some concrete steps um, specified uh, so that we can actually then say, aha, North Korea has done what they said they would do, and Trump can then claim that as another mm. foreign policy but, but win. But this is, this is the irony, isn't it, Carlo? Because we've had evidence from the intelligence community suggesting that North Korea has actually stepped up its production of enriched uranium. So if anything, it seems that the first summit actually accelerated what it was supposed to slow down. Well, I don't know if it accelerated it, uh, but certainly there are, uh, I mean, if those reports are true, there are activities going on, which would obviously not be included in what was agreed. Uh, I think the, 
in terms of it being a deflection, it, this is a very interesting game that that uh, Trump is playing. Usually, in other parts of the uh, in other parts of the world, we've seen him ratchet up pressure in order to kind of see what comes from it. This is what uh, this is the extended process of what we're seeing right now. He he um, he increased the pressure with all of this uh, warmongering talk, and now uh, we're seeing him try to put together some type of deal where there really is no path to uh, a deal that um, that is uh, available to him. The what is uh, fascinating though is that the. Um, is that this is now uh, the in terms of his uh, position toward China? Uh, this is also the path that he's mm-hmm. uh, taken toward China with regard to uh, being belligerent on the trade war. And there we haven't seen much uh, come of that uh, in terms of NAFTA. He was very belligerent on trade. The NAFTA deal turned out to be effectively NAFTA 2.0. And so uh, I don't know how much we can really. Yeah, I don't know how much we can really. Expect I'm, I'm glad you've mentioned China because Jeffrey, let's 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 throw it open to you because look. We have been told that he's going to use the occasion to also reach out to the Chinese because obviously they've got their trade war and the the deadline before the imposition of tariffs is actually in early March. But could China actually play a bit of a game here? In other words, look, we have influence with the North Koreans. So if we try to wrest concessions from Pyongyang, you in turn tone down the trade war. So we'll give the triumph to you. It's a win-win all round. Yeah. It's not clear if China wants to play that game. China seems to have a capacity to have a kind of modular approach to foreign policy, whereby it can deal with the economic issues in one dimension and deal with the the issues with, say, Korea in the other dimension uh, and ne'er the two shall meet. And it would be fascinating to see if it tries to cross the streams in that way. Um, If it does do that, I think Trump will then need to uh, find a way of spinning what happens such that he's able to claim victory on on both fronts. I mean, it doesn't, the substance doesn't really matter, I think, to the president. What matters Mm. is that he can sell it as a win to his base. Sure. But I mean, he, he certainly wouldn't object to the idea, perhaps, of, of, of using that additional help, if you like, from, from the players in the region, like the Chinese, the South Koreans, of course, and the Japanese, even though if he were to go down that path, wouldn't it defeat the bilateralism that he prefers? Because that way you can pick people off. Mm. I think the big problem with uh, including China in this uh, type of deal or, or uh, anticipating that he's going to use China as a kind of leverage point for North Korea is that uh, the economic nationalists within the Trump administration are uh, focused solely on ter- in terms of on China in terms of trade, uh, and uh, this uh, for the Trump for Trump to uh, try to. Uh, in, involve China in some type of deal in order to give China a win would thoroughly go against these uh, nationalists like Navarro and uh, Leisinger. And so I think there's a, there's a, there'll be a disconnect there between foreign policy and economic policy. Okay, so we'll all be talking about this, no doubt, uh, later in, in the month. In fact, it's the end of February, the 28th, the 27th and 28th that uh, this uh, summit is supposed to take take place. Well, you're listening to Midori House with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests, Carlo Bonura and Jeffrey Howard. And coming up next, we're going to be finding out why a 37-year-old Japanese MP says he's not getting enough RESPCT, that's respect, from his political elders. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? 
Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24. Still with me are Carlo Bonuro and Jeffrey Howard. Now, a 37-year-old Japanese politician is causing a bit of a stir amongst his colleagues because of his age. Shinjiro Koizumi, whose father is a former prime minister, says MPs feel that he's too young to take on the position of power because of his youth. Mr Koizumi heads a a policy committee in Japan's ruling Liberal Democratic Party, and he's often touted as a future leader. But is the world's ageing economy ready to let a youngster lead it into the future? Well, that assumes, of course, that he's about to take power before his 40th birthday. But when you, you think about this, Carlo, I mean, he's actually quite old compared to the rising superstars in the United States, like Alexander Ortega-Cortez, because she's the US Democrat representative. She's 29. So he's 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 old compared to her. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I think youth is very interesting in politics because on, on the one hand, uh, it is very invigorating uh, and very charismatic. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, you know, you have uh, well-established um, political hierarchies and establishments in which age usually dominates, uh, dominates and uh, people hang on to power for a very, very long time. If you look at uh, the United States. If you look at Trump, for instance, we were just talking about him. He is very old. Mm, he's uh, in his early seventies. Early seventies, yeah. And the idea that he would stand for re-election, uh, pushing him into his late seventies, is is fascinating. Uh, and I mean, some somebody could look at this uh, piece and perhaps say that there is something about uh, some type of Asian cultural values going on here. But I think this is um, this is about modern politics. Is that uh, you know networks and establishments uh, are formed of cliques that uh, want that are designed to be durable within politics. And it just so happens that uh, young people, no matter how charismatic they may be, would uh, will find it hard to break into that. Mm. And Jeffrey, I, I don't think that 37 is particularly old because from what we, <laughs> we know about this, this young man, young man, is that, you know, OK, he's 37, but he's the son of a former prime minister. So he's been groomed for something great. He was also educated in the West as well as Japan. One of his idols is is JFK. And it, it does seem a little bit odd that um, in the Japanese, well, amongst his political colleagues in Japan, they probably just think, oh, well, you know, you're, you're not quite ready for this yet. Yeah, and that Even might, though the portfolio he holds is very important. And that might reflect something specific about Japanese culture and the, the role of age in that culture. But I think there's a, there's a general question here about um, what the political moment requires. And I think in different societies at different times, the political moment calls for a certain kind of personality. And I think we saw this in the United States in the 2008 campaign between Barack Obama and mm, John McCain. Yes. And there's this contrast. Do 
we want um, youth and with it the uh, open-mindedness and the freshness and to use Carlos' phrase, the invigorating quality of it? Or do we instead see youth as kind of naive and lacking the experience um, that kind of protects you from being taken advantage of? Um, Or do we think we need someone who's experienced? Or instead, do we think that experience means that you're a bit jaded, that you actually don't Mm. see new opportunities? And I think certainly in the U.S. in 2008, um, there was that hunger for change. And when the political moment is calling for change, I think it's plausible anyway to think that the youth will tend to do pretty well. Um, But when there's a sense that we need something more like order and stability, maybe um, people who aren't so young do well. That that Mm. would at least be a hypothesis worth investigating. But but what what makes it so fascinating as well, uh, Carlo, is that, you know, if if you look at what what this 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 guy is saying it's happening against this backdrop of of change which seems to be sort of moving towards mm. younger politicians and i'm thinking for example of um the new zealand prime minister jacinda ardern now she's 38 and again you we don't know who donald trump will face off against in mm. 2020 but amongst the sort of group you've got younger people you've also got um the ethiopian pm i'm please forgive me if, if i mispronounce his name abiy ahmed He's 42. So there does seem to be this, this general tide in, in many developing countries or developed or developing economies where it's like, look, maybe it's about time that we actually gave way to, to younger people for the reasons that we've outlined. We've, we've got nothing to lose. <laughs> yeah, these are, I think these are good points. I'm not sure that there's a – I don't know if there's a general tide out there. If you think about uh, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, he's in his 70s. Uh, but And think about the group of Democrats who are beginning to face off against uh, – you know, who are beginning to jockey for position to, to be the nominee so far in the future. <laughs> it's years in the future already. Uh, the um, uh, Who is at the head of that pack in terms of polling? Joe Biden. And I think – And he's about 76 yeah, or something, isn't he? Uh, it's 76 and has already had a kind of troubled career in terms of how his his early runs at uh, being president turned out. And now he's seen as the orderly, uh, you know, uh, uh, the orderly substitute to um, Donald Trump who can uh, guarantee a victory, these type of things. But I think uh, the, the thing to keep in mind here is that age is only one element of uh, political leadership. And mo- more importantly, age is only one aspect of the things that would keep someone from uh, from uh, having having an opportunity to become a leader. And so I, w- I would argue that in any case, uh, that it is connections and access to networks and political dynamics that go far beyond age. And age is actually the way we talk about this publicly. But in, in the end, there are other things that must be uh, structuring this. And at the end of the day, it's just a number. And on the subject of age, <laughs> this is the final s- subject, because John Humphreys, who is one of Britain's most famous broadcasters, says he's going to retire from presenting the flagship BBC radio show today in the autumn. It's very rarely that we actually promote another station. But the 75-year-old's forensic and interrogative style of interviewing made him feared by politicians but loved by loyal listeners. He once famously interrupted the then former finance secretary Ken Clark 30 times during an interview. So can today survive without Humphreys? And how did this respected broadcaster go from being a journalist into the closest thing possible to a celebrity? I think the thing which I'd like to ask, and again, either of you can take this, I mean, who on earth would want to replace him? Because that programme has notoriously early starts if you're preparing it. 
<laughs> You'll start work when everyone else is asleep. <laughs> You'd certainly have to be a be an early riser. I mean, I think the this is a fascinating question. I mean, we live in a in an era of kind of a fragmentation of epistemic authority, and what I mean by that is who do people trust when it comes to knowledge? Um, and people are very skeptical now. People are skeptical about mainstream news, and you know, there's something really uh, attractive about that early era where you had a personality like Walter Cronkite in the U.S. context um, who would speak and people around the world, around the country would listen and believe what he said. And when he told you something happened at nine o'clock that day, people believed that that happened at nine o'clock that day. Um, And I think there's something attractive about returning to that kind of an era where you have um, news personalities that occupy this this pivotal civic role of being a source of... um, uh, of unity when it comes to our our shared epistemic framework, so that citizens can mm. be on the same page when it comes to what's true and what's false. I kind of get that, but then the, the flip side of this, Carlos, is when the journalist becomes a show. Doesn't that give him or her too much authority over the content? And where does that leave the role of producers and editors? Because they're supposed to be steering the ship. But if they're up against a presenter who's got an ego that's bigger than the Mersey Tunnel, then that's it. You're doomed. Do as you're told. (laughs) I I mean, I I presume that the producers have put the person in the place precisely because of that ego. If you think about people like Pierce Morgan, right? Mm. Uh, (laughs) This is uh, someone who I think people know when they're when they're casting him to be an anchor like that. People know what they're getting. But it's it's if they stand in the way of the story that everybody has roles in newsrooms, and if a producer or an editor can't do their job, because as far as the 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 star of the show is concerned, I'm not having that. It's my program. Not interested. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. that I behave like that. I hasten to add. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think uh, if you if you know Armando Inanucci's Veep, right? Uh, one of the things I think they've done incredibly well on that show is to actually turn the uh, news anchors into part of this uh, reality comedy and they've uh, done that incredibly well this is exactly I think how we should think of these uh, celebrities mm. maybe John Humphrey's excluded possibly uh, so John Humphrey's excluded just to protect ourselves yeah. but I guess as well that if you have an, an anchor who's too embedded and he or she has been there for decades they they actually thwart the rise of the talent because there has to be a succession Absolutely. And I think maybe the point I was I was making need not uh, depend upon the idea of there being a single personality that occupies this role, but the idea that there is a program that commands um, uh, uh, near universal allegiance in terms of a common understanding that this program will give you the truth, I think is a valuable thing to have in a democracy. Yeah, so the, que- the final question has to be, how do you get an old timer to move on? <laughs> Shock on. <laughs> question for another day, perhaps question for another day. We'll leave it there. A very tactful response because that brings us to the end of today's show. Carla Bonura and Jeffrey Howard, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Augustin Machella, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was Christy Evans.